This is episode 33 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Julie Huffman, and we are diving into all things esophageal dysphagia. So, uh, Julie Huffman is a speech pathologist at UNC Rex Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. She has 22 years experience in dysphagia evaluation and treatment in a variety of settings with current focuses in outpatient rehab, skilled nursing, and oncology services. She has a special interest in esophageal disorders and how they affect oropharyngeal swallowing for the last 15 years. She has been instrumental in devising new protocols to include consideration of the esophagus for both fees and MBS studies throughout the continuum of care in her hospital system. She's been teaching on the subject for over 11 years. Julie is currently pursuing research opportunities related to esophageal disorders and dysphagia, and she is a graduate of the University of Buffalo, just like me. Oh, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. So I'll tell you, we did end up breaking it up into um, into two episodes because there's so much. She goes into so much great detail. Um, so this is going to be a two-parter, so make sure you tune in next week to hear the rest of it. But I actually got a chance to meet with Julia DRS this week. She's just the sweetest woman ever. So that was such a good time. It was so nice meeting so many of you at DRS. It's so weird to have people recognize my face everywhere, but it's, <laughs> it's cool. And I'm glad you guys are digging this podcast. Like I said, it's been fun. Um, so I really, really appreciated meeting all of you. I think I got like nine new names of people really cool researchers at DRS that are just great presenters that are, have all agreed to come on to this podcast. So if I didn't learn anything at DRS, at least I made good contacts. No, I, I'm totally kidding. There are some really great presentations. And um, when I kind of thaw out my brain, I'll, I'll share some of those with you guys. I'm currently in the middle of moving. So my life is a little chaotic right now. So right now I'm recording in my basement of my house and in my new house, I'm going to be recording in the attic. So the um, the acoustics might be a little funky for a little bit till I get them kind of professionally squared away, but bear with me, people. I'm, I'm still plugging through this. So, um, what I wanted to say was while I was at DRS, you know, so many people would come up and talk to me about the podcast and people just, were just asking me questions kind of about my life and about what I do professionally. And I just, I was kind of shocked. So I was almost like, I thought everybody knew what I did for a living. Cause I feel like I talk about it all the time, but then I guess I try to make a conscious effort not to talk about it done on this podcast because I want this podcast to really cover all as aspects. Um, but I do own a mobile fees company. So I'm in New York. Uh, we also service Pennsylvania. My company is called Mobile Dysphagia Diagnostics, and we do mobile fees for skilled nursing facilities um, as well as other facilities. Um, so yeah, look, look me up if you guys need mobile fees in your area. So that's kind of why in the beginning it was really fees heavy because those are my peeps. Those are just everyone that I've hung out with. But like I said, I've made a really conscious effort to, you know, reach all ends of dysphagia. So um, I do have a couple more really honed in MBS presentations coming up, a lot more on treatment. Um, so yeah, it's it's really important to me to cover the gamut. But I just thought I'd reintroduce myself because I, I guess people don't know much about me. I guess they, you know, hear me interview people and don't know much about me. So I've been getting a lot of emails lately of people who are like, how did you get where you are? And how do you do what you do? So Episode one, go back and listen to it. Um, it was released way back when in September when I first started this cool thing. So go back and listen to that if you want to hear my life story of how I got into medical SLP, dysphagia, mobile fees land. So just thought I'd share that with you guys so you can get to know me a little bit, I guess, through the microphone in my basement. But uh, like I said, hope you love this episode. 
I know I say every episode is my favorite, but this one really just opened my eyes like, holy cow. I feel like a lot of people do not know this information. Um, so I really hope that this helps to expand a lot of your horizons and we start thinking of the esophagus a lot more when <laughs> it is a pretty important part of swallowing. So I really hope, um, you know, Julie really does this presentation justice. So hope you guys love this and I will catch you next week. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Um, let's see, a few announcements today. MedBridge, we're going to be doing a March Madness end of the month March promo. So that free upgrade to the premium package is back on. So for 95 bucks, you can get the free upgrade to the premium package, which includes all access to the CEUs, the home exercise builder, the mobile app, and the patient engagement handouts. So that'll be running all the last week of March. So if you've been emailing me or sending me messages about when that deal is going to come back and I told you I didn't know, I honestly didn't know. So it's next week. <laughs> so hop on that if you're interested. Um, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you to our sponsor, EndoHD. Um just love hanging out with them. Always great seeing that whole crew at DRS. So um, check out, they've got this really cool new system and residual scale, coolest thing ever. So check that out if you guys are interested in fees and equipment. And lastly, our other sponsor is the Med SLP Solution. So whether you're a newbie, whether you're a oldie but a goodie in medical SLP, um, check out medslpsolution.com. It's a monthly membership site, includes resources in the form of handouts, videos. We cover uh, CSEs, we cover cranial nerve exams, we're covering aphasia, dysarthria, um, all sorts of topics decided by the members, um, and everything is evidence-based with lots of references to boot and all peer-reviewed to make sure that all of the information is up to date. So um, if you're interested, check that out at medslpsolution.com. And lastly, this, I think I said lastly already, <laughs> if I did ignore me, um, this episode with Julie is, this is just going to be great, you guys. This is like such a teaser though, so you may like just be obsessed with esophageal dysphagia after this and be dying to know how you can learn more. Well, you're in luck. Julie has three courses coming up. No, I know there's one in May in North Carolina, and then there's two in the fall. There's one in North Carolina and also one in Buffalo, New York. She's coming to see me. I'm so excited. Um, but go to carolinafees.com and check out her esophageal dysphagia course. Um, so if you are interested in hearing more from Julie, um, her course comes highly recommended by SLPs. I know a ton of my colleagues have said it's a great course and told me I have to go. Uh, so go to carolinafees.com or you can email Julie directly at huffro at me.com for a brochure. And Julie is graciously offering a discount for Swallow Your Pride listeners for her two-day courses when you use the code SYP at checkout. So that's at carolinafees.com. 
and you will receive $25 off your registration if you sign up in the month of April through carolinafees.com. So um, Julie was also invited to speak at ASH this year, so you can also catch her talking about esophageal dysphagia in Boston in November, which I'm so excited to hear. I'm just obsessed with this woman now. So um, hope you guys all love this episode. Uh, go check out her courses on carolinafees.com. Use that SYP promo code to get $25 off during the month of April. Hello, Julie. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Great. Really glad to be with you today. Yes, I'm so glad we were finally able to connect and get this done. Yes, absolutely. We've had a lot of requests for you. I'm not sure if you if you knew that, but... Well, yay. I hope I can do it justice. I'm used oh. to talking about the subject for like 16 hours straight. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try to condense it down, but yeah. That's um, right. So I, you know, I, I talked about you a little bit in the beginning, gave your bio, but if you want to kind of tell the people a little bit who you are. Yes, yes, I will do that. Um, so I have been a clinical medically based speech pathologist for 23 years, like you said, which is kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> we have a connection because I went to UB. University yeah, of Buffalo. yeah. Uh, I've worked really along the whole continuum of care in adults. So um, started out in hospital based outpatient did some home care in my early years. I did a stint in inpatient rehab and a stint in neuro care, which was not my favorite. Um, did skilled nursing and long-term care, and I'm uh, acute care, and I'm currently back in outpatient. So um, I am a clinical um, person. I still see patients twice a week. Uh, not twice a week. I see two days worth of clinical. <laughs> uh, but about, I would say about 2000, I started kind of questioning the esophagus um, in 2001, the role that I had at the time performing outpatient modified various well studies and fees in my hospital, I realized my patients had what appeared to be esophageal symptoms. Um, thought at the time, gosh, maybe I should take a class on this, or a course on this. <laughs> and there wasn't any. Um, so that really kind of started my um, self-education in this area. So it's been nearly 18 years, I guess, of a conglomeration of, of reading and studies and delving into the literature. Um, and it really made such a big impact on my clinical practice right away. So I realized that a few years into my study that I um, should probably put a course together to get the information out. So I started teaching in about 2005, right before I had my third child. I was like, if I don't have this, do this course now, it's never going to happen. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, yeah, that's a little bit of my, my background and kind of how I came to be interested and sort of learn about the esophagus. Um, you know, and I realized that, and I still know this, that we're, we're not on the same page as a profession and, and you're doing a lot to try to help us get there. And, um, it's always been my reason for trying to get the, the information out there. You know, I think that not being on the same page just in how we view the swallow and consider the GI tract um, does us harm, you know, I think it limits our effectiveness, our credibility, and I think it hurts overall our, our effectiveness with patient care. So that's absolutely kind of my, my little spiel, I guess. Absolutely. I love my it. Plug. Yeah. All right. So I guess that leads us to where do we start, Julie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> hopefully if you're listening, you know that our patients have esophageal symptoms, most of them have some sort of, um, you know, 
already an esophageal or GI issue that we know about, that they are on reflux medications, they have, um, you know, they have a history of hiatal hernia, maybe they've had dilatation in the past, um, or maybe it's their symptoms, you know, they're complaining of solid food dysphagia, food getting stuck, uh, reflux type symptoms. And so um, my biggest plug, I would have to say, is that I guess I have to just summarize in, 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 in 16 hours worth of <laughs> information. Um, we really cannot rule in primary oropharyngeal dysphagia without considering the esophagus. And I would go so far as to say that's really a misnomer. I should say GI tract. Um, so they are so intimately entwined that we have to consider them as a whole. And, um, you know, even even from the time of development, we started out as a mouth and a rectum and everything kind of flew in between. And people are going to say, oh, my gosh, she just said rectum. I'm a speech pathologist. <laughs> um, but in any event, you know, it's so the systems are so there are the, really that relationship between the oral pharynx, the mouth and the, and the pharynx and the esophagus is unbreakable. And so we really need to to not be saying, OK, this is what I see in the mouth and the pharynx and that's it. Um, uh, so I have come up with kind of a really simple analogy for that, for this relationship, uh, kind of from the literature and, and how I teach. So my analogy is that it is like the kitchen sink. Okay. So, uh, you think about our kitchen sink and you've got the bowl, that's kind of our pharynx <laughs> and actually we could say it's the mouth and the pharynx. And then you have, um, you know, the pipe, and that's your esophagus. And I guess we could say the UES is the drain. Um, that's exactly how I described it to one of my patients yesterday. There you go. I just yeah. said you got a lot of you got a lot of hair clogged in your drain, and it's not going <laughs> down really fast. Yes, yes, yes. So um, you know, so if we think about that exactly, so if there's a block in the drain, if there is a block in the pipe, if the pipes are slow. What happens? Well, we see um, the sink doesn't empty very quickly. The sink is slow or perhaps things come back up. I think that's the more obvious. People think of if you have esophageal dysphagia, things are going to be coming back up. That's not necessarily slow. It just may mean that there's alterations in the mouth and the pharynx from what's going on below. Um, you know, we could go so far as to say if that blockage was at the street, that's the worst. If you've ever had that kind of plumbing problem. Um, you know, nothing works then, you know, um, all the way up to the sink. So even as far away as, you know, lower GI stuff could have an impact on our oral control swallow function. And that's, um, that's a pretty big deal. So when we think about evaluating swallowing, if we're not considering what's below our kind of our points of reference, um, we probably are missing a big part of the picture. So that's my, that's my big plug. Agreed. I love it. Out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> good. Good. We're in agreement. Yeah. So the swallowing process is really a dynamic process from the lips to the rectum. And that relationship is unbreakable. And we really can't divide them apart. So that while we do do that, kind of these arbitrary divisions that really probably come from medical divisions like ENT and GI, our role cannot stop at the crical fringes. And I will just say this. So people say, well, well, you know, it's not in our scope of practice. It is in our scope of practice to consider 
what's going on below. We may not treat it, we may not be the person that's appropriately going to diagnose it, but to talk about it, to consider it, to absolutely consider the impact on the oropharynx is is really important and in our scope of practice. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. There was someone that reached out to me a few months ago and wanted to come on here, but I wanted to figure out a little bit more of what he was talking about, but um, kind of that was my big thing. You know, I was like, well, tell me what you think the role of the SLP and the esophagus is, you know, because I know we're able to just kind of say UES dysfunction or make the referrals or things. So I guess, yeah, that's something that I, I really have wanted to know myself more of is how much of a role do we have yeah. in, in that? Yeah. So we can talk about that. And um, so, you know, a lot of people will say that, and Asha has had some things to say, which I'm I'm so grateful for, and um, because before I was when I was talking about this stuff, and Asha hadn't said anything that didn't really fare well for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and people were like, "Nope, not going to hear you." Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Asha has has um, some information, you know, about our role, and there was a document that was put out in 2004 in regard to speech pathologists performing videofluoroscopic swallow studies. And it really went into quite in depth um, sort of our role as far as knowing, first of all, recognizing the interrelationship between the oral, pharyngeal, and esophageal phases of swallowing, but then also mentioning the skills that are required for the speech pathologist that, um, you know, we need to be aware that if a person has motility disorders or structural abnormality of the esophagus, that it will impact the function of the oral pharynx. And then what our role is if we screen that. So doing a, um, you know, esophageal sweep during the modified barium swallow study. And then how to eat, you know, what do we do about it? What do we say about it? So um, it, the document goes on to say, you know, that the speech pathologist really has a role in identifying any dysfunction in swallowing, and then certainly making the appropriate referrals. Um, so certainly collaborating with your radiologist, collaborating with your physicians. But I don't think it's enough anymore, in my opinion, just to sort of determine that we're guessing the person has some GI dysfunction and then say, refer to GI. Uh, I think we all know that that doesn't work that well. You know, yeah. either yeah. the referral never happens, right, or the person is seen and perhaps they're seen for um, a different exam that we were kind of anticipating they needed and they have, um, you know, an endoscopy and they say, well, you know, they don't have any structure. Um, the, esophag the integrity of the esophagus looks fine. And we're thinking and that's the big thing. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. We thought it was probably a motility problem. Um, you know, I didn't think it was a structure or what have you. And so I think we need to be, much more aware of the tests yeah. that evaluate the esophagus, what each limitation and, um, you know, limitations and benefits of those tests, you know, what the gold standards are for looking at certain, you know, certain disorders, knowing like, for example, that manometry is the gold standard for looking at motility, um, the limitations of a barium swallow. It's not all about the barium swallow. Um, you know, barium swallow is very good at looking at, um, you know, generally the structure of the esophagus and any looking for any obstructive dysphagia, it's only fair for motility and really nothing about mucosal disease. Um, you know, so knowing about the tests and then I think guiding a little bit more that referral of what, you know, there's nothing wrong with us saying 
differential diagnosis may include, or you know, these symptoms may be representative, maybe representative of X, and trying to get um, sort of more of our expertise in there as far as what the patient might need next. Yeah, I think that's something probably in about the last year that I've been a lot more cognizant of too. You know, I think I used to be so scared to kind of go down. You know, I used to just write GI referral. You know, yeah. but now kind of the more that I know. I am revealing more on my report, and I, I think that helps everybody. You know, I'm not making a diagnosis. I'm just saying what I think might be going on. So Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, you know, what do you do? We get a significant number of referrals from the GI doc, so we can't say right back at you. You know, we're right. able to <laughs> No, right back at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, saying, okay, let, let me rule out that I don't think it's an oral pharyngeal a primary oral pharyngeal dysfunction that I think the dysfunction is coming from below. Um, and then what I think it might be or what might help that person along the road of getting a, a proper diagnosis and hopefully management for it. And um, I guess the, another big point here, so yes, it's in our scope of practice to be considering all this stuff and to be saying what we think. Um, a big point here, though, is realizing that when we are doing our instrumentals, um, it is truly a visualization of how the bolus is passing through the the mouth and or just pharynx. Um, and so we don't know anything about strength of the musculature. We don't know anything about pressures. We're inferring some of that information, but we certainly don't know it. And the person may have a primary GI or esophageal problem with secondary oral pharyngeal changes. And so really to be able to put that big picture together, um, you know, that the history of the present complaint, the, his, the patient's medical history, the medications, the patient's current symptoms, and then, you know, do they have something that would, you know, kind of look like it truly should be an oral pharyngeal basis for this problem? Or is this something I'm seeing that's secondary to an esophageal dysfunction or below? Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. Let me let me go back. You said something. I, I wanted to bring it up back up again. You said in 2004, Asher came out with a position statement about, or I'm not sure if it was a position statement or something about esophageal dysphagia. Mm -hmm. And did they did they make a statement then about doing an esophageal sweep on the modified? Yeah, yeah. So what's kind of interesting is they they did they talked okay. about doing the esophageal sweep on a modified, and uh, that we needed to confer with the radiologist in regard to those results and what we might see. Um, what's kind of interesting, though, and, and sort of disappointing to me, is that um, ASHA's has revamped their uh, their guidelines, and um, it's not because they've revamped their position, but they've made them much more general. Uh, so this document that's actually very, very detailed is no longer, I realize, no longer on the ASHA website. Oh. And in place of that, it just, you know, just says generally, you know, um, if esophageal screen is, is completed, X, Y, and Z, that we need, the speech pathologist needs to be aware of the interact, you know, the interrelationships between the oropharynx and the esophagus. It's just much more general. Yeah. Um, when I talked to, to some people about this, because I was kind of disappointed about that, um, other people felt like, no, 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 that's good. Like, general is good, because then we're not linked to, you know, really, I guess, um, put in a little box of what we can and cannot do, but I prefer the more detailed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think most of us kind of do. Yeah, because I know some people still have trouble getting their radiologist to do the esophageal sweep. So, you know, if we had oh, a position yeah. statement from ASHA that said, yes, this is part of the, the MBS, it'd be 
a lot easier to advocate for? You know, it would, it is, I think, I think, and I think one of the things that I say, um, is the radiologists don't really care about ASHA. Right. Right. They don't know who ASHA is. They don't really care. We can't say, well, ASHA says, and they're going to say, you know, so we really have to come out, uh, come at that argument based on their literature and really based on, you know, you have to know the literature of these interrelationships and why, you know, why are we asking you to do this sweep? So I think it's a really important thing um, to be able to know the literature that really does um, highlight this interrelationship between the oropharynx and the esophagus and what we can get from an esophageal sweep versus going on to a full esophagram, another exam. Um, so while it's not there, like you said, I don't know that it really helps our position much. I think that we need to show them their literature. And I that's think that's so, yeah. helpful. So interesting. That's such a great point. So, yeah. So we could talk about that literature a little yeah. bit. Yeah. All right. Um, so I, I will just comment. So I think that, you know, like I said, primarily my biggest soapbox is that we cannot rule in a primary oral pharyngeal dysphagia without considering the esophagus. Okay, so what we're seeing, even though we see all the way up to the mouth, you know, d disturbed lingual peristalsis, we might see delay in swallow function, we might see, um, you know, pharyngeal residue, aspiration, et cetera, that may not mean that is, even with all of that, that is a primary oral pharyngeal dysphagia. All of those things can occur from stuff going on below. Okay, so I'll just mention that. So really, I think our role has to be Yes, to still identify all those risk factors, symptomatic complaints, and signs of oral pharyngeal dysphagia to complete our, you know, um, clinical exams, instrumental exams, but make sure we're adding in, you know, a review of the history, looking for risk factors and symptomatic complaints of the esophagus, um, and then being able to, so, to really decipher whether we think it's primary oral pharyngeal or esophageal. And sometimes we don't know because sometimes both areas are bad. Yes. You know, so then I'm saying something like this person appears to have a multifactorial dysphagia, and this is what I see in the oral pharynx, and this is what's going that I see in the esophagus, and this is what it might mean. And kind of, I don't know another profession out there that's going to put all of those pieces together but us. You're um, so right. Yeah. So I think that's just hugely important. I think we play, play a really important role. Um, so yeah, so let's talk a little bit about some literature. It's kind of funny because in, in listening to your podcast, which I really appreciate, um, I really, I, it's so good to see all the fellow speech pathology nerds out there. Oh, are, totally. Like, <laughs> <laughs> totally. To on that. Totally. So I'm one of those, I'm one of those nerds. And I hope that your, your podcast really encourage people to read more research, um, you know, we don't have all the research out there. I'll just put a little, you know, my little take on it. We're never going to have all of those double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized studies that tell us exactly what we need to do, what we're seeing. But we do. there is a lot of good literature out there. There's a lot of bad stuff, too. There's stuff that just, you know, the methodology does not make sense. The limitations of the study does not make sense. So you can't just read the titles. You know, people will send me um, articles and they and they're really going off the title or they're going off the abstract, you know, need to delve in more. Okay. That's my big point there. That's okay. <laughs> no, that, I mean, that's I totally the whole objective of this podcast. You know, I, so many people are just stuck at this really superficial level and just asking other people's opinions. And it's like, well, let's try to formulate your own opinion, you know, 
dive into the research more. If this is a topic you're really passionate about, dive into it and read more about it. So, you know, that's why I love, you know, I, I get to hear from you guys, but then we also do in the show notes, you know, I, I think you sent me about 20 different references. So if this is something people are really passionate about, go read these other papers and learn more about it. Yes. And then, you know, take them, take them into consideration with a critical eye too. And, and then really try to put the whole presentation of the, of the patient together. Um, not from a recipe of if this, then that, but really putting the whole picture together and critically thinking about what would be best for this patient. Yeah. Um, so, 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 and I know you're going to ask this later, but two of my faves. That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. We can do it now. Your, your secret is out. But, <laughs> but, uh, but truly in trying to come across this, address this argument, and I was in the same position trying to justify the, the uh, esophageal sweep in my modified barren swallow studies way back in, in 2000. Um, I was looking for literature to support this. And I said, Asha, and the radiologist said, I don't care. Um, you know, in 2004, I was able to say that. Um, but anyway, so I started looking at the radiology literature, and Brownman Jones and Martin Donner were two radiologists, our two radiologists that completed a bunch of pharyngeal and esophageal imaging and literature and, and did research on, on the pharynx and the esophagus and the interrelationship. And, and so some of their work is really my favorite and how I went, up and went about really justifying to my radiologists saying like, okay, guys, this is your literature. Um, so one particular article still stands out and I actually had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Jones and I said to her, um, well, I was totally starstruck because how you have been following this woman's work for all these years. But I said something like, you know, we're still facing this argument. I don't know if you realize that we're still facing this argument about how to get the radiologists to do this esophageal sweep. And she said, oh, well, you just need to give them this article. Um, <laughs> so this is the one. So it's pharyngoesophageal interrelationships, observations, and working concepts. This was written in 1985. All right. This is not new stuff. This, this, uh, really establishing this intimate relationship between the oropharynx and the esophagus is not new. And yet here we are in 2018, still arguing the point. Um, so 33 years later. Yeah. 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 Right. Probably older than a lot of people listening to yes. the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. So what this really highlighted is that simultaneous disorders um, of the, the, the pharynx and the esophagus, esophagus are so prevalent that we have to evaluate both. So one of their conclusions was if you, if a person has dysphagia, you really need to evaluate both areas. It's not enough to know what you see in one area without looking at the other. Um, this article also talks about uh, the cricofringus really being the window into the person's dysphagia, that if there is the presence of a crico, presence of a cricofringial prominence or bar, that that's telling you something. Um, so that may not be primary. You might go, oh gosh, this person has UES dysfunction. This person has cricofringial prominence. That's the problem. Then you have to ask the question, why? Well, why do they have that cricofringial prominence? Well, we know that when things happen in the esophagus and below, the cricofringus clamps down in an effort to protect our lungs. Okay. So if you have reflux, um, you know, if you have dysmotility, if you have a, an obstructive dysphagia, like a web or a ring or a tumor, um, it's likely, not always, but likely that the, the cricofringus is going to clamp down. When the cricofringus clamps down, the pharynx doesn't work so well, because then you have the pharynx squeezing uh, 
pretty typically an abnormally um, high pressure in the pharynx to try to get the bolus through the cricopharyngeus. When that happens and it can't get through because the door is closed or partially closed, what do you get in the pharynx? You get residue in the pharynx. Um, you get path of least resistance and the person aspirates. And this does not mean a lot of people think, oh, these, well, it was the first bolus. So it can't be esophageal because um, they think the esophagus has to fill up first before there's going to be symptoms. And that this just isn't true. If the, esophag if the esophageal dysfunction is there, it's also there on every swallow, most likely. Well, I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> that's, a, that's an overstatement. Um, but in any event, so it talks about the cricopharyngeus being the window into the patient's dysphagia. Um, this is also an article that talks about distal esophageal stuff So and, and the concept of sort of pharyngeal localization. So when people say it's stuck right here and they're pointing to the throat, um, it may not be there. And so even though we might see some molecular residue or piriform residue, that may not be what they're feeling. And that's hard to decipher, but knowing that a third of the time when people um, actually had distal obstruction, they pointed to their pharynx. So not even retrosternally, retrosternally would be your chest, and not even thoracic inlet or suprasternal notch, but the pharynx, okay? Um, and don't you don't we get those people? They'll be like, my pills get stuck right here, and it yep. feels like it's in my left tonsil. Yep. And, and then I, you're like, oh, it's stuck in your molecula, and then we do it, and it's not. Yeah, right. And and then sometimes we see the molecular residue, and we're like, oh, that's it, but it yeah. doesn't mean that. Um, so asking the person too, you know, is I is part of what I will do. I will say, I want you to let me know if you feel like things are sticking. And then when they have molecular residue, and I'm saying, hey, do you do you feel it sticking now? And they're telling me no you know, that sort of um, can give you some clinical information. And sometimes it is stuck in their molecular and they're telling you yes, but you sweep down and it, their esophagus is full, you know, as they're getting all these tertiary contractions, et cetera. Um, so, so, you know, keeping this kind of thing in mind and that, that pharyngeal localization, you know, people say, well, but they say it's getting stuck in their pharynx and that's just not accurate. Um, so really the conclusion of these authors is that, um, 40% of the time, when we do view uh, fluoroscopically the pharynx and the esophagus, either one has enough that is problematic. In other words, that um, it could be capable of causing dysphagia. The problem, you know, 40% of the time they have enough in both areas that it's capable of causing the patient's dysphagia. So what does that tell us? You know, a lot of our clinical information is so important. The patient's history, the patient's medications, the patient's symptoms, and, and then this presentation. Um, and we can talk a little about what to look on for on fees as well. Yeah. And if you or your facility is interested in checking out a true high-definition fees imaging system, uh, please check out our sponsor. That's EndoHD. That's N-D-O-H-D.com forward slash contact. And if you were lucky enough to get to play around with their new system last week at DRS, it's the coolest thing ever. Um, but if not, they have a new patented technology for calculating pharyngeal bolus residue. How cool is that? The calculated re residual scale is exciting new technology that will provide a calculated quantification of observed bolus residual in patients with dysphagia during fees. The calculations happen live in real time for each and every frame of video produced during fees. So if you're interested in checking out that technology or learning about their true HD fees system, you can contact them at ndohd.com forward slash contact. So um, 
so yeah, so love, love everything by, by Jones and Donner and their work has been really important to us and to be able to make that, that, um, I hate to say argument, but that, <laughs> yeah, with being able to do the esophageal sweep and really consider the esophagus. Yeah. Great. Um, there was another study that was done and again, it's not new. And I had the pleasure of meeting, um, Hank Nelson Abbott, he came to one of my courses. He's one of the authors on this study. This is a 1992 study. And this is um, oropharyngeal and esophageal interrelationships in patients with non-obstructive dysphagia. And um, he came to my course, I think it was in Athens, Georgia. And I was so nervous because I was like, what am I going to teach him? Like, I'm studying his stuff and he's going to come to my class. Yeah. And basically what he said to me, he was so gracious and, and so kind and um, but what he said to me is that he and, and his colleagues had been carrying this torch of really trying to get our field to understand this relationship between the pharynx and esophagus. And he was about to retire. And he was like, I wanted to see what you're doing and I want to pass the torch. And I was like, no, don't leave it to me. <laughs> I'm not having a great success getting this out there. So this is not, in other words, just to, to reiterate that this is not a new, this is not new information that we've gleaned. We have known it. Um, but this was a study that um, looked at patients with a known oropharyngeal dysphagia. So there are two groups, the oropharyngeal group, and they looked at their esophagus, both fluoroscopically and manometrically, and then the esophageal group, and they looked again at their esophagus and their oropharynx, both manometrically and fluoroscopically. And what they found with the esophageal group was these folks had um, disturbed lingual peristalsis, slowed pharyngeal transit time with poor constriction of the pharyngeal muscles, okay, and they had penetration and aspiration, okay, and these were folks that had things like achalasia, diffuse esophageal spasm, nutcracker esophagus, various esophageal etiologies, and um, so of this group, they classified 92% of these folks had a nonspecific esophageal motor disorder. Um, so again, what they came to conclude is that if the person um, has a dysphagia, we really need to look at both areas and really try to decipher which one is likely primary um, as we make our treatment plan and, and recommendations. That's so interesting. Yeah. I know I had yeah. a guy maybe a few weeks ago and he totally stumped me. I was doing his fees and just all sorts of residue and different issues going on. And I, I was totally stumped and I went back and watched the video and I called one of my buddies and he was like, clearly there's some funky pressure issues going on here. And kind of when I thought of it from that way, it made total sense of what was going on, that he was having some major pressure issues. So I was like, well, that really made me think of things a lot differently, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah, exactly. And when they looked at the esophagus in folks that had a known oral pharyngeal dysphagia, there was things like, you know, poor esophageal body peristalsis, spontaneous or tertiary contractions. Yeah. Um, there yeah, he had a, like a laundry list of esophageal conditions. So I was like, this totally all makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then they had poor LES relaxation in those folks too. So again, trying to put the whole picture together is, is probably the, um, the biggest puzzle and the biggest clinical question. And like I said, I think we're, we have a very big role there in trying to put that together. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, and um, you brought up a really good point and something that I'll just interject here. So the way that I really have come to do this is really thinking of like a pendulum. Um, and so I think about, okay, when I go through the history with a person, what things really sound consistent with an oral pharyngeal problem and what things go on the esophageal side? And like you said, he had a laundry list of problems. You know, your pendulum is going to go heavy on the esophageal side before you even get started with your exam. And then when you bring into play their present symptoms, their medication, and you have this pendulum, it's not actually all that difficult to say, okay, before I even do any kind of bedside clinical exam or instrumental, I already have this weighted pendulum that's telling me it's most likely an esophageal etiology. And actually, it may not be, it may be below the esophagus, but it's most likely a GI-related dysphagia. Um, you know, when we have nothing on our side of the pendulum for the oropharynx as to why we would be seeing some, something in the oropharynx, that is really when we have to take pause or very little on the side of the oropharyngeal. And then you see this horrible swallow. Um, you know, you see this horrible pharynx. You know, then that's when you have to take pause. Okay, maybe this is not a primary oropharyngeal problem. Um, and we know a lot of that. So for the folks that don't have, or they're not doing their own instrumentals, we know a lot of that right from history mm -hmm. and from clinical presentation and from medications. Um, and actually, the GI literature says that pretty much GI problems, esophageal problems, could be diagnosed by history alone. That's something the GI literature says. Crazy. That's good for us. Yeah, yeah. So if you do that kind of pendulum, you will um, really have it highlighted for you. Before, and, it, and you need to do it before you do that instrumental so you don't get swept away and thinking, no, 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 this is, this is all referential. Right. Um, right. So, yeah. I so, try to think of it, you know, it, when you are doing the chart review, you know, you see they have like a massive brainstem stroke or something, you know, so then you think, okay, clearly what cranial nerves might have been affected here? And a lot of times I think, okay, if the vagus nerve is affected, then we know we may have some UES issues going on too. So I try to think of it that way. So then, you know, when I do my fees or whatever, I'm, I, I'm like, I've got to weigh these other parts of things that I can't see, but I know definitely might be in play here. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's not as much the folks that, you know, in, in the situation you mentioned that were like, okay, they had a brainstem stroke. We know that that's going on the oral pharyngeal side, right? Yeah. Even though there yeah. can be components that go, you know, like you, you're saying UES is functional on the esophageal side. But so many of our patients don't fall into that category where they don't right. have a known, you know, a lot, especially in the skilled nursing long-term care environment, you know, where they don't have a known neuro problem. And I'm not talking about a tiny little cortical stroke or, you know, or some of the strokes that, that may not impact swallowing. And what did that person's swallow function look at like before? And do we know their history? Like, you know, it's very telling if someone was the last, you know, grandma was the last person at the table for the last 15 years. She was, she would eat slow. And that tells you they have a slow GI tract, a lot of GI dysfunction. People compensate. Um, so while well, she always preferred, she really stopped eating meat years ago when you're asking about their diet. She, well, she doesn't really favor bread. She prefers soups, you know, and, um, they've already self-compensated. They chew longer. They take more time at the dinner table. Um, you know, they've altered their diet and those self-compensations are not going to, they're not going to say, if you said, well, has she had any history of swallowing problems? They're going to say, no, 
Right. Uh, but if you ask, you know, how long does it typically take to eat, did it take for her to eat a meal? And, um, you know, those kinds of questions. It's, it's really interesting. What did she favor before? What was her diet like before? It's really interesting to see how people self-compensate. I think that's one of my most important questions that I always try to ask because those are the ones that the nurses will just sometimes go ahead and downgrade to, you know, puree and nectar thick because they're taking too long to eat. You know, I hate hearing those horror stories. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then come to find out grandma's been doing that for 40 years before (laughs) the nurse even saw him, you know. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And managing, you know, that yes, they were the last one at the table, but, but managing, um, so really, we're able to compensate for the slowness in their, their GI tract. The other thing that's that we need to know is there's lots and lots of disorders, like you've mentioned, the vagus nerve, but there's a lot of disorders that affect both the oral pharynx and the esophagus or the GI tract. And we need to know, you know, the makeup of the esophagus, that the upper one-third is striated muscle, the upper one-third to one-half is striated, the remaining is smooth muscle. What disorders affect striated muscle versus smooth um, you know, what disorders affect the enteric nervous system? You know, Parkinson's disease is a perfect example because these are people that have GI dysfunction, uh, i.e. constipation. Years before diagnosis, they can have constipation um, up to 10 years before diagnosis. And um, it's because with the depletion of dopamine, you have a disintegration of the myenteric plexus, which is part of that enteric nervous system. It's the part of the brain of the gut. And so the GI system becomes very slow. Okay. So we know that every person with Parkinson's that we see, even though there's also known oral pharyngeal changes and changes in striated muscle, et cetera, we know that they are also going to be a person with pretty massive GI dysfunction. Um, we have to take that into consideration. And uh, that's, it's pretty um, enlightening to do esophageal sweeps on folks with Parkinson's. They almost always have really significant esophageal dysmotility. We need to ask people if they're going to the bathroom, um, you know, do they go to the bathroom regularly? Um, you know, if, they're, if their GI tract is moving and they're having bowel movements, it tells you a good sign. If it's not, you know, you're, you have some information there um, that may also tell you some, some telltale things about what might, why things might be going on in the oral pharynx. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 There's a lot, there's a lot to it. Um, so there's another study that I just want to highlight because this one, um, was done in our field. So Mendel and Logeman did a study in 2002. Uh, this was a retrospective analysis of the pharyngeal swallow in patients with a clinical diagnosis of GERD compared with normal controls. And this was a pilot study. And, and you know, a lot of these are tend to be pilot studies, and we do need more information. Um, but in any event, this is really interesting. Um, it really identified the differences in pharyngeal swallow in subjects diagnosed with GERD as comp- compared to normal controls. Uh, so functional measurements and timing data were taken from video fluoroscopic studies of folks with GERD and um, gender match control, age and gender match controls. And results showed significant differences in temporal measures between the two groups. Um, and so the group with GERD had significantly longer pharyngeal swallow events, longer pharyngeal response times, longer pharyngeal transit times, changes in base of tongue to posterior, posterior pharyngeal wall approximation, decreased hyoid excursion, 
and decreased uh, cricopharyngeal opening. And overall, they, the, the authors described that the folks with GERD just had what they called a hesitant pharyngeal swallow. It just looked slow. It just looked hesitant. Um, and of course, and some of your other speakers have highlighted this, we're always looking for that textbook normal swallow when we do our instrumentals. And that just can't be the case because <laughs> it's not the case. And uh, I think one of your speakers, I can't remember who now, said that she had a modified done on herself and she had a completely abnormal swallow. Yeah, yeah. And then she spontaneously recovered. Right. But that also <laughs> highlights, you know, what about the day-to-day -day variation of in swallow? You know, what about the week-to-week -week variation? What about the hour-to-hour -hour variation? What about if you haven't had a bowel movement in three days? You know, just, just a lot of these things that may highlight the variations. But um, this study was just interesting showing that, that folks with GERD had all these changes in the pharynx um, without actually complaining of, a, of dysphagia. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the authors concluded that the SLP needs to recognize the need for an extended video fluoroscopic swallow study. So again, more credence for the esophageal sweep and that we really need to be aware of these changes that are possible in folks with known esophageal problems. Yeah. Cool. Um, so leading right into that of us looking for that textbook normal swallow. And I, I think someone else has mentioned this, um, but I, it's also a favorite of mine, the study, uh, the Eckberg and Feinberg study, altered swallow function in elderly patients without dysphagia, radiographic findings um, in 56 cases. This was from 1991. So what we think of as normalcy of swallow is not really well understood. And I think that you've been highlighting that really well. Um, and so this was a study looking at an older cohort without dysphagia. So the mean age of the folks in the study was 83 years. And they did video fluoroscopic uh, studies and radiographs with the subject, subjects both in erect and recumbent positions. And normal deglutition, normal swallowing as defined as in the textbook or in young persons was only seen 16% of the time. That's crazy. These are not folks with dysphagia. Um, and, and so we are looking for that textbook normal swallow. And now the person just had surgery and has had general anesthesia, or they're now on pain meds, which very much slow down the GI tract. Um, all the opioids that slow down the GI tract. We know that from anybody that's taken something and is worried about getting constipated. Um, you know, so many things that are going on upon this admission, um, with this person, and there ain't no way that swallow is going to look normal just from those things, but also premorbidly what they looked like before they came in. Um, so really taking that into consideration. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, you know, do that pendulum, you know, really start to think about what in the history would fall on the oral pharyngeal side, what in the history is going to fall on that esophageal or below side, you know, taking into consideration, um, you know, if the person does have regular bowel movements, how long they sit at the table, what medications might influence the swallow function, um, if they're on any medication, known medications for something like reflux, you know, kind of really thinking about the picture before you do your clinical exam or instrumental. And I think that really does um, significantly highlight which one's going to come out heavier and uh, what we might need to do from there. All right. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes 
or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening. <laughs>